Hello and welcome to Definitions, the podcast where we crack the lid of the coffin on death, dying and all the morbid morsels in between. Before we go any further, halt and take heed. These are your words of warning. I will be discussing topics of a deathly nature that may be upsetting to some. And today we will be yet again rolling out the ropey history of public execution with all the morbid and gory details that involves. If you're not in the right headspace to get down and dirty with the maggots today, then that's fine. I totally get it. Sometimes you'd rather finish crocheting your triple-necked cottagecore jumper for the neighbor's new puppy Cerberus and play Russian roulette eating the mushrooms you found in the woods than dig into a freshly dug grave. Now's your time to save yourself. If you're still here, I'll assume you've got your shovels at the ready and are practicing your noose tying because today we're once again treading the gallows boards in the second part of our short drop into the world of public execution. It is said that there aren't many worse smells than the stench of burning hair. Good then, I suppose that the girl had cut her short several years before. Unfortunate though, that it was one of the reasons she would very shortly be burned alive as a martyr. For any of my listeners who are over the age of 19, It's perhaps hard to imagine having committed an act so terrible as to warrant this fate over the course of such short a life. Although considering that no one is burned alive anymore for heresy in the UK, perhaps there are those of us that would have been looking at a far more violent end just a few hundred years ago. Though I like to think I most likely would have been locked up in an asylum, Highly likely as well that I would have encountered my wife and my close friends there anyway, so swings and roundabouts, I suppose. But back to the teenager preparing for one of the worst deaths imaginable. At some executions, by burning the condemned would first be strangled to death before their lifeless bodies were tied to the pyre and set alight. Supposedly, a more humane death if you can imagine that. This death would not be humane at all. Whether because the young woman was little more than a teenager, or because she was set up for murder on trumped up charges, if this was the enemy's aim, it would not work. And like the Phoenix, Joan of Arc would rise from the smoking ashes of her death pyre to martyrdom and sainthood. Joan was born to a peasant family in France around the year 1412, and it's said, when she reached the age of 13, that she began to have divine visions and claimed that the saints were talking to her. 
they urged her to take up the cause of Charles VII in order to help him reclaim his throne and to take up arms against the English in an effort to end what would come to be known as the Hundred Years' War. And in some ways, she succeeded. Charles took his throne and Joan took back Orleans from under the sway of the English. But when your patron's favor balances on a knife's edge, any failure is enough to seal your fate. And when Joan found herself in trouble, the king refused her aid in her hour of need in order to protect his own freshly reinstated crown. She was captured and tried for everything the English could think of, from the heresy of her divine visions to her immodest and unfeminine dressing of herself in men's clothes. On the 13th of May, 1431, in the city of Rouen, Joan of Arc went to her death. It's said she screamed and cried for her god as the flames devoured her. Though, despite the heat that seared her body, it is most likely that she would have died by smoke inhalation before the fire itself could take her to the next world. Burning at stake is one of those historical forms of death with which we are all somewhat familiar. Mostly through stories of witch trials, though in truth our predecessors had some much nastier ways to deal with witches, but another episode perhaps. So great is that connection, in fact, that it even shows up in pop culture references today, like Elvira's Mistress of the Dark. A comfort watch of mine, I won't lie. But across history, there have been other women whose beliefs have seen them put to the same fate as Saint Joan. Hypatia, a renowned philosopher, mathematician, and astronomer, possibly the greatest of her age, lived and died during the 5th century in Alexandria in Egypt. She broke the mould by demanding space for herself in a world ruled by men, where women were often expected to cover themselves and stay in the home. In the end, this feminist icon fell foul of religious strife. She was set upon by Christian zealots who deemed that, because her own pagan beliefs were different, she had to die. Hypatia was pulled from her chariot as she rode through the city, before the mob dragged her to a temple, beat and flayed her to death, tore off her limbs, and burned what remained of her on a pyre. It does not, my friends, get much grislier than that. I'm afraid this episode does not get any better though for powerful women, and in particular, the list of noble women who saw death come for them in the shining blade of an executioner's axe or sword, or in the flash of the guillotine, is a long one. To name just a few are Mary Queen of Scots, whose beauty and rivalry Elizabeth I could not stand, Marie Antoinette, who famously let the people eat cake while they starved to death, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, Henry VIII's beheaded wives, both accused of adultery, and the Lady Jane Grey, Queen of England, for just nine days before her young shoulders were relieved of the weight of her head. But back we return to the aforementioned Mary Queen of Scots. Through her son, 
Mary would help usher in the end of the Tudor lineage and the age of the Stuarts, but unfortunately, she would never live to see it. Though her final moments would certainly hope to cement her place in history. Catholic Mary abdicated her throne and fled Protestant Scotland for England in 1568. Instead of the warm family welcome she had hoped for, Elizabeth's jealousy of her cousin and suspicion over her claim to the English throne led to 19 long years of imprisonment for Mary. Eventually, letters were intercepted that proved Mary's involvement in a plot against the Queen, and she was put to death for treason. In the first instance of Mary's botched beheading, it would seem that unlike other royals and members of the nobility, the executioner was not a specialist who would cleanly cleave her head from her shoulders in one fell swoop. Instead, the first blow hit her in the back of the head and left her shrieking in pain, and it took another swing to kill her, and at least still one more to finally sever her neck. And to quite literally add insult to injury, after the deed was done, the executioner took Mary's head by the hair and raised it into the air to proclaim, the queen is dead only for it to be revealed that she was wearing a wig when her head slipped free of his grip and dropped to the ground. Dignified? No. Memorable? Definitely. Throwing it back once again to the ancient world, the next method of execution is quite unique. Historically, poison has not been the executioner's choice. Of course, this doesn't mean it hasn't been used. The carrying out of one of history's strangest executions can be attributed to none other than a famed Greek philosopher and founder of Western philosophy, Socrates. Owing to his own staunch beliefs, Socrates, in some ways, helped his prosecutors in securing the death penalty for him. He chose not to take the offer of exile, nor did he fight for a lesser penalty or even take the opportunity to escape when he had it. In the end, as it was scribed under Athenian law, Socrates died by drinking hemlock, a poison derived from the plant of the same name, which affects the nerve impulse transmission to your muscles and will eventually result in respiratory failure and death. Though, really, it could have been worse. Socrates could have been sentenced to be thrown over a precipice to his death below, or stretched on the board until he expired. So, maybe poison was the simplest solution for this situation, but for our next historical hierophant, poisoning was just the beginning. Most people, I think it's safe to say, would settle for just the one method of execution. Surely more than even two is overkill, literally. And three? Well, that's just ridiculous, right? Not, apparently, for one Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin 
holy man, attendant of the sickly crown prince and rumoured lover of the last Tsarina of Russia. If you are a child of the 90s, I will be truly flabbergasted if you are not intimately familiar with the animated masterpiece Anastasia, which launched a new generation's fear and obsession with Rasputin. Just ask my partner and her collection of weird hardbacks about the man. And much like his life, rumours of his death were greatly exaggerated. Rasputin had spent years worming his way into the confidence of the Russian royal family, and his eventual executioners believed that by taking Rasputin's murder into their own hands, they were saving Russia from a monster of a man. The reports from that fateful night in December, over a hundred years ago, speak of a man who would not die. Again and again, they tried to kill him, but he kept on getting back up. First, they fed him cakes laced with poison, but Rasputin suffered no ill effects, so, of course, they shot him. And though he bled, the light behind those gleaming eyes would not go out. Naturally, they shot him again, four times at least, until finally he stayed down, though, according to his daughter, as they dragged him to a hole in the icy river nearby, Rasputin was still alive. By all accounts of this story, Rasputin died by drowning. And what a story it is. Alas, the veracity of such a tale does not stand up to forensic examinations that took place after his body washed up further down the river. Rasputin had been shot three times, that much was true, but no lingering trace of poison was found in his body and no water was found in his lungs, meaning that he was dead once he entered the water. Had he been breathing at the time, freezing water would have been drawn in through his mouth and nose as he struggled to breathe. So maybe in this case, the truth does not live up to the vivacity of fiction, but it does provide us with a fascinating insight into how Rasputin's executioners had to rationalize him into being a monster in order to come to terms with what they had done to another human being. One horrible tale that is 100% true is the grisly end that met the men who conspired to kill a king on the 5th of November in 1605. The name Guy Fawkes inspires images of rows of people huddled in their coats, squelching across muddy fields to lean into the warmth of the bonfire, sparklers clutched in mittened hands, waiting for the fireworks to begin. An older tradition that some may remember is the burning of the guy, a human-shaped effigy, often clothing stuffed with paper and straw into the shape of a man that, at the end of the night, would be tossed onto the roaring bonfire. So why, in this secular age, are we still throwing the likenesses of men into fires? Well, it's pretty much to celebrate the foiling of the gunpowder plot the ritual throwing of the likeness of the plotters onto the explosion that they tried to create. And 
No one tries to kill a king, gets caught red-handed, and gets off scot-free. For criminals, the likes of these, those who turn traitor to the crown, only the most horrendous punishments would be doled out. And so, Guy Fawkes and his co-conspirators were sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. Chances are you can work out some parts of this for yourself, although the actual order of events was slightly different. The punishment would actually start with the drawing, which involved those convicted being secured to a sled that was dragged along the ground behind a horse from the prison all the way to the gallows, which gave the crowds that lined the streets ample chance to jeer and throw things. Once the prisoner finally made it to the place of execution, they would be hanged until almost dead, but cut down before they could expire. I will warn you if you are in possession of a set of crown jewels yourself, this next part may make you a tad uncomfortable. Having been cut down, the prisoner would be relieved of their privy member, as one text calls it, followed by the slitting open of the belly and removal of the bowels, all of which were then burned on a fire in front of the poor castrated sod. Luckily, they wouldn't suffer for much longer, as the head would then be severed and the body divided into four quarters to be disposed of at the king's pleasure. So, most likely stuck on spikes around the city to warn others what their fate would be if they got a hankering for high treason. Humanity is nothing if not creative and inquisitive, and when put to use, these attributes have helped to propel art and industry to unimaginable places, some of which will make your stomach flip and your toes curl in phantom pain. With this in mind, perhaps it's not surprising that across time we have come up with almost as many gruesome punishments as there are crimes which can be committed. So alongside our woeful wastrels who lost their lives in all sorts of terrible ways, I thought I'd break down some of the weirdest and worst punishments ever concocted to help people along to meet their makers. While there's no concrete evidence of the brazen bull ever existing, either way, just the idea of it is horrifying. This charming sculpture park piece was a large hollow bull made of bronze, which functioned as a massive oven. The unlucky soul would be placed inside the bull and a fire lit from underneath, which would then heat the metal. The person inside would experience burning metal pressing into them all over their body, air that would sear their lungs from the inside out, and hypothermia from intense heat after only 10 minutes. I can only hope that this device of torture and execution is as mythical as some historians make it out to be. The Romans really loved their entertainment. Seeing as one of the most famous pieces of Italian architecture is the Colosseum, a huge gladiatorial amphitheatre, it's easy to see that they were serious about it too. 
But the Romans weren't bothered with special effects when it came to violence. Nope, they wanted the real deal. As such, alongside the gladiator matches were such delightful entertainments as being left to the beasts. This was a form of execution reserved for badly behaved Christians, although in ancient Rome just being Christian was enough to get you stuck with that label, and which would see a small group brought into the arena and pitted against wild boars, leopards, and of course, lions. The Christians would be torn apart in front of screaming crowds, baying for their blood. What a way to go. One of the grossest forms of execution I have come across so far has to be scaphism, which of course we have the Middle Ages to thank for. Scaphism, also known ominously as the boats, was a gruesome ordeal where the criminal turned victim would be forced to imbibe massive amounts of milk and honey before being placed in a boat with another secured over top. The victim would also sometimes be smothered with honey as well. They would then be left to bake inside the two boats whilst the honey and any um, bodily excretions began to attract insects of all kinds. What I'm essentially saying is that this was death by bugs. The victim would be left there to be devoured by the insects until they died. Until now, I thought that rat torture, having a cage of rats secured to your body until they literally eat their way through it just for a way out, was the worst way to go. But I think this takes the cake. If I didn't already turn my back on cow's milk, this certainly could have convinced me. So, there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed our delightfully deadly delve into some of history's most notorious executions. Although, perhaps enjoyed is the wrong word, though I at least hope you found it interesting. If you've made it this far without tapping out, I can only imagine you did. Whatever that says about you, just remember you're not the one who spent time researching and writing it, but hey, we've all got to have hobbies, right? <laughs> if you are also a lover of the dark, the strange, and possibly of cursed literature, join me over on TikTok at Definitions, where I also chronicle and recommend all of my favourite morbid books. If you have any thoughts to share about the podcast or your own impending mortality, drop them in the comments. Reviews and ratings go a long way in helping to get this podcast out there, and I greatly appreciate the support. I want to tell you guys about all this weird stuff as much as you want to hear about it, and the more you let me know you're out there listening, the more I'm inspired to delve into the depths of the internet and my local library to bring you these twisted tales. The Definitions podcast is researched, written, and read by me, Jasper Chanter, with music provided by Zapsplat. Anyway, chop chop, breaks over, pick that shovel up, that grave's not gonna dig itself. Bye bye for now, listeners. Catch you on the other side.